Welcome to Fireside Breakdowns. I'm Robin. And I'm John. And together, we research and break down complex and timely topics facing our society, and we bring our findings to you every week. Our promise to you is to bring you honest analysis backed by research, to skew our bias towards what can be factually supported, and to try and make it clear when we're giving our opinion versus speaking about actual research. Naturally, we're human. We have blind spots and biases, and they will show through. But our goal isn't to convince you to think any certain way. We want to give everyone a foundational understanding of these complicated topics so that together we can discuss and address them in a thoughtful and beneficial way. Because of the topics we cover, some of our episodes may get heavy, and some topics might seem divisive. But we believe that, even on these issues, common understanding can be found. And we hope those of you listening agree. We don't accept that the current state of society is the way it must be. Together, through discussion and on common ground, we can build a better world for ourselves and future generations. So we suggest getting comfortable and maybe having a good drink on hand as we work through this stuff. Welcome to our fireside. shouldn't get too heavy. But there is a chance that you might have strong feelings about our topic. So what are we talking about this week, you ask? The filibuster. I know, I know. How much more exciting can we get? There's an impeachment trial that just concluded, cabinet members are being confirmed, and we decided to tackle the filibuster. But the fact of the matter is that this is actually a really timely topic. There's much discussion as to the fate of this legislative checkmate maneuver, And there's a chance that we could see significant decisions made concerning its use. Plus, it's one of the few times that we get to talk about full-grown senators peeing in trash cans on the Senate floor. Uh, Real quick, why we aren't talking about the impeachment trial right now. Robin and I didn't really feel like we had anything to add to that conversation. Like, you can go out and find any number of different breakdowns and analysis and takes on the impeachment trial and what it means. And we would just be another voice in a sea of a million voices if we tried to tackle that. So barring a specific listener request on the topic, we're just going to go ahead and let that one slide. It is media saturation. Yeah. Has, yeah. It is what it is and it's not going to change no matter how much we discuss it. Yeah. Yeah. I will say it was... Both incredibly frustrating to watch and ultimately unsurprising what happened to it. Only in America can 57% of the jury find you guilty and yet somehow you're acquitted. And that's not a confession. I didn't even watch it. Not a single minute. You probably did yourself a favor. I did watch it and. If you, if you haven't, I would strongly advise watching the arguments if you are going to talk about your opinion on the matter, because I have seen a lot of people who clearly did not watch the arguments <laughs> voicing their opinion on it, and they believe a lot of things about <laughs> what is happening that are just not true. So as with all things... Do your research, yeah. then form your opinion. 
Yep. That's, I would say that's what we're here for, but we're not talking about this one. So, you know, listen to somebody nope. else on that. <laughs> nope. All right. All right. Let's get back to the filibuster. We're really tackling lately a lot of the, I guess, minutia of politics, of presidential procedure, of congressional procedure. This is stuff that is probably not familiar, but at least not alien to a lot of people, a lot of listeners. If you pay any attention at all to uh, politics, you've heard the term filibuster before. You've heard last week's discussion about the first 100 days. You've heard that term before. And we want to talk about these things because even though we might have heard the term, we might have some passing familiarity with the term, we might not know the full context of the term. And familiarity breeds comfort and in that comfort we might make assumptions that aren't necessarily true so we really want to hammer a couple of these topics home so we know what's coming up because there's definitely going to be a lot of discussion about the filibuster in the next several months to a year and (laughs) it might get to the point i actually definitely foresee it getting to the point where the media coverage is only talking about the filibuster for at least Two or three cycles. Yeah. Well, and I, I feel confident in saying that there may not be a lot of sensational topics for the media to cover in the next few years. So, um, fingers crossed. Right. I, I'm just going to go out on a limb and say that. So it would not surprise me if we do get a little bit of extended discussion about the filibuster. And we want you, listening audience, to understand exactly what it is and how it works and what people are saying about it. All right. So, wait a minute. What is it exactly? A number one, first question. In the simplest possible terms, a filibuster is a tactic by which U.S. senators can delay or even prevent a vote on a particular piece of legislation by talking for a really, really long time. The term actually comes from a Dutch word meaning pirate and refers to mercenaries who launched unauthorized campaigns in Central and South America in an effort to help set up or overthrow governments. Hmm. The term... (laughs) 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 The term became the nomenclature for this uh, political maneuver in the 1850s, actually. The tactic in the Senate, it takes advantage of a rule which says that once a senator is recognized on the floor he or she may speak on an issue without being impeded by anyone. So defenders of the filibuster argue that it protects the rights of the minority party by ensuring that they have enough time to present their position on a piece of legislation and that it encourages consensus. Opponents of the process say that it subverts majority rules and creates gridlock. And both sides of the argument claim to have history and the U.S. Constitution on their side. And... Honestly, we don't have enough historical insight to say who's right. We will later in this episode talk about, more in depth, I should say, talk about the arguments for uh, the filibuster and against yeah. it. Um, but I, I, I hesitate to say that either side's argument is definitive in any way because they both make some compelling points. They do. And like so much of what we attribute to the Constitution and the framers of the Constitution, there's just a wealth of ambiguity here. 
So how did we get here? Okay, so the concept that we know as a filibuster has actually been around since ancient Roman senators were debating the policies of Julius Caesar. The Roman Senate didn't in any way limit how long its members could speak, and so historians believe that the first time that that was actually exploited was in 60 BC by Cato the Younger in a debate over contracts with private tax collectors. Why does that sound like it could just literally translate into modern politics? Because two things two things are certain, Robin, death and taxes, death and taxes. which means they're always going to be discussed. Right. As for this tactics application in U.S. politics, its emergence was much less structured. Like we mentioned earlier, the Constitution actually makes no mention of this process that we call a filibuster. On its face, the Constitution actually assumes, or appears to assume, that legislative decisions would be made by majority vote. Gregory Kroger, who is the author of uh, a piece called A Political History of Obstruction in the House and Senate, argues that evidence actually suggests that the filibuster arose not out of any founding principles, but instead out of tenuous precedents and informal practices. In the early years of Congress, both representatives and senators had the option of this lengthy exposition. However, each body did also have a rule that would allow for the end of a lengthy debate. It's called the previous question motion, and it allowed a majority to vote to end discussion on a particular topic. By 1806, the Senate had only rarely invoked this previous question motion. So Aaron Burr came to the Senate and basically chastised them and said that their rule book was far too complicated and suggested that it could use a cleanup. <laughs> so they deleted that previous question rule to make things a little bit tidier. I'm sorry. I'm just imagining Aaron Burr in the modern Congress just having a stinking <laughs> aneurysm nonstop. Because right. of the, the the procedures and the rules and everything that we've got. Yeah, oh my God. his rant actually said something like, for being the most advanced deliberative body in the world, your rule book is just far too messy or something like that. Which, Facts. you know, it is what it is. Facts. In the House, things took actually a different turn. In 1811, Barrett Gardiner, a representative from New York, tried to filibuster a proposed trade embargo against Great Britain, and his colleagues just <laughs> were not even having it. Like, they were not going to have any of that. So they, they invoked the previous question rule on him, which they had only ever used up to that point to pause debate to completely end his remarks. And that precedent now basically prevents filibusters in the House. So when you hear the term filibuster, it specifically applies to the Senate. Yeah. It's just not possible in the House. That group of which, 100 senators. Which actually is great because because <laughs> teams of senators, we'll talk about this, I think, have, have got together to filibuster a certain thing. Yeah. So they didn't have to talk nonstop by themselves. Imagine how much worse it would be if you had 538 representatives and half oh of them got together to filibuster something. Yeah. I mean, if, if you think that Congress is stagnant now. Yeah. So, moving a little further down the timeline, even though the rule that limited the length of debate had been fully and completely removed from the Senate rulebook in 1806, the first filibuster in the Senate didn't occur until 1837, so more than 30 years later. And then from there, well... Things got 
testy enough that President Wilson, after a group of 12 anti-war senators managed to kill a bill that would have allowed Wilson to arm merchant vessels in the face of unrestricted German submarine warfare. <laughs> <laughs> like, why do people argue yeah. against this stuff? The Germans are sinking our ships left and right. They don't care if they're civilians. They don't care if they're, if they're warships. We should probably give our civilian vessels something to fight back. Nah. No. Nah. Uh. Anyway, those those uh, those anti-war senators caused President Wilson uh, to strongly encourage the legislators to adopt a rule that could rectify the situation. So in 1917, senators adopted Rule 22, which allowed the Senate to end a debate with two-thirds majority vote, a device known as cloture. And... The rule was first successfully invoked in November 1919. This was used to end a filibuster on the Treaty of Versailles. Or if you're from Missouri, Versailles. Oh, God. Just... <laughs> the, uh, so the longest filibuster in the history of the, United, yes, of the U.S. Senate excuse me, was delivered in 1957 by Senator Strom Thurmond of South Carolina. You know... The guy who finally left the Senate at 100 years old. And, uh, Robin, can you guess what he was so adamantly against that he would speak for more than 24 hours? I can. Yeah, I know. It's because you wrote this part. Robin knows that it was the Civil Rights Bill of 1957. That's right. Thurman used steam baths to dehydrate himself and refused most food and water in preparation for his planned filibuster. This was so he uh, he didn't have to use the restroom as much. Mm-hmm. However, he still ended up falling prey to the call of nature. So the thing about the, the filibuster is, at this point in time, you actually had to literally be on the Senate floor. Yeah. You, you couldn't just filibuster from anywhere. So he, as long as he stayed on the Senate floor, he could continue his filibuster. But if he had to leave to use the restroom, the filibuster was over. He wouldn't be recognized again. And he could not continue his, his filibuster. So a procedural trick was used to yield the floor to another senator for just a few moments so Thurman could use the restroom. Uh, but everyone knew that that wouldn't happen again. Uh, basically, another senator was like, hey, how long is this guy going to talk? And Thurman's aides was like, uh, another hour or so. So this first senator was like, hey, um, can I just put something in real quick? So we can get done before this, you know, before we end the day or whatever. And Thurman was like, hell yeah, you can. I'm going to the bathroom. Yep. (laughs) Because that didn't actually interrupt his time. So instead of doing that again, knowing that it wouldn't happen, his staff had an intern hold a bucket (laughs) inside a nearby cloakroom. So Thurman could use the restroom if necessary while keeping one foot on the Senate floor. I mean... (laughs) Being during a filibuster is kind of a tricky thing. So at one point, one Texas senator even wore a catheter for her 11-hour filibuster in the state senate. Who knew that the greatest enemy to the filibuster to this point has been human anatomy? Right? (laughs) So after Thurman's performance, it became evident that filibusters could be particularly useful to southern senators who sought to block civil rights legislation. 
There was a 60-day filibuster against the Civil Rights Act of 1964 before cloture was finally invoked. But this ultimately led to some changes in the process. With only one bill under consideration at a time, a filibuster could stop all other matters in the Senate as long as that senator kept talking. But in the early 1970s, senators adopted some processes that would allow for more than one bill or one matter to be pending on the floor at once. And then in 1975, the Senate reduced the number of votes required for cloture from two-thirds to three-fifths, or 60 of the current 100 senators, making it easier to achieve in the case of a filibuster. And this has led to what is called the modern or the stealth filibuster, which is kind of exactly what happens now in, uh, in the Senate. And, and it accounts for basically the appearance of complete and utter stagnation in the Senate. And yeah, I did just basically say that the Senate can't get anything done at all, period. Especially because of this stealth filibuster. Today, senators can delay or block a bill simply by signaling that they intend to filibuster. Like we said before, entire teams can come together to promise to delay the vote on a subject for God knows how long. And legal, and legal scholars Catherine Fisk and Erwin Cherminsky have noted that a credible threat that 41 senators will refuse to vote for cloture on a bill is enough to keep that bill off the floor. Instead of risking a protracted debate, the Senate majority just waits to introduce legislation until it has enough support for cloture, if somebody were to try to filibuster it. Important side note on the uses of a filibuster. A filibuster can no longer be used to block executive and judicial branch nominees. In 2013, the Democrats had a majority in the Senate, but they got super frustrated by the stalled nominations um, by President Barack Obama for cabinet posts and federal judgeships. So they used a procedural tactic called the nuclear option, which we're going to talk more about in just a little bit, that allowed all executive branch cabinet appointments and judicial nominations below the Supreme Court to proceed with a simple majority of 51 votes. And, I mean, Republicans got super mad and they said it was terrible at the time, but then four years later they went nuclear too and they reduced the confirmation threshold for Supreme Court nominees to 51, which Who was actually a significant topic coming? of discussion over this past year. Well, yeah. I mean, that is, uh, mention it in a little bit, but that... That particular ruling is responsible for th three Supreme Court justices Correct. on the bench right now. Yep. Three of them. So, that would... Mm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Not here to talk about that right now. Okay. I think this question probably answers itself, but, uh, <laughs> but you know, knowing what, what we've talked about, about the filibuster up to this point, why are people, why are people mad about it? Well, gee. It seems obvious, so why is this a topic that we need to break down? We kind of addressed that earlier, and that's, and that's because most modern presidents and senators have struggled to pass legislation, and filibusters have held up political appointments. It's a controversial tactic. Some argue it's an important tactic empowering a minority party that otherwise would have little sway in the Senate, while others contend it plays too much of a role and is undemocratic in the way it can paralyze the ability of the majority to act. However you view it, we've seen a rapid increase in the use of the filibuster since Obama was elected president. And it's 
part of this increasingly or seemingly increasingly divided country. And it, it makes a filibuster, it makes it politically beneficial for the minority party to obstruct whatever the opposition's agenda is. Now, something I, we haven't explicitly said this, but I, it should be apparent that the only time the filibuster becomes a powerful tool is if the majority party has fewer than 60 senators. Right. If if the majority party has 60 senators, it doesn't matter. The filibuster can't do anything anyway because the majority party can always vote for cloture. Right. That's something that I don't think we've seen in our lifetime. Yeah, I, ca- I can't, I can't remember ever remember it. a time when that... And it's unlikely... Case. Yeah, it, it is... As, as the way things stand right now, right now on, on Valentine's Day, actually... In February 2021, uh, it is unlikely that any any either of the parties is going to ever have two or uh, three fifths of the of the seats in right. the Senate. It's not impossible, but it is it is highly unlikely. Right. So the filibuster, therefore, is always important and always in play. The fact that the majority party is never going to have the ability to to achieve cloture by themselves, you would think then that this would sort of like even out, right? Would they just trade back and forth? The Democrats would just filibuster the Republicans and then the Republicans would just filibuster the Democrats and nobody would ever get anything done, which we do kind of see happening, actually. But the reality of the situation is that the filibuster has historically been more damaging to progressive agendas which generally translates to it being more harmful to modern-day Democrats. And this is due to the fact that, that Democrats or progressives tend to run on larger, more sweeping agendas than Republicans, advocating for social change and policy solutions to societal problems. The filibuster held back civil rights legislation, and that is the perfect perfect example of this, because that is... Statistically speaking, that is the situation in which the filibuster has been used most often. So how do we change this, Robin? I mean, so calls for reform have grown alongside our awareness of this stealth filibuster. Some people are suggesting rewriting the Senate's rules to lower the cloture threshold. Others are suggesting requiring lawmakers to go back to conducting these old school talking filibusters instead of just merely threatening them. And then there is what is likely to be the most hotly contested choice, the nuclear option. That was a great pun. That's a great pun right there. Pun intended. Okay, so let's start by talking about lowering the cloture threshold. Instead of needing three-fifths of the voting members present to pass something, lowering the cloture threshold would mean that you would only need, like, 11 twentieths or something. That would be, like, 55 senators if they were all counted for. This is a pretty straightforward solution, right? If, if fewer senators are required to pass a measure, then the power of the filibuster would be much weaker. You wouldn't need to pull 10 senators from the opposing side. You would really only need to pull five, which is much more achievable. But here's the problem. The most straightforward way to lower that threshold would be to actually change Senate Rule 22, the one that requires 60 votes to end a debate on legislation. 
but ending debate on a resolution to change the Senate standing rules requires two-thirds of the members present voting. Therefore, without a bipartisan Senate majority that favors curtailing that right to debate, a formal change in Rule 22 is extremely unlikely, which is the problem to begin with. It's, it's a, well, it's a catch-22. Ha 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 ha! Hey! Ha. This, <laughs> is, so this is just a solution that's not going to happen as long as the minority party is required to agree to make it happen. The other option or the next option, rather, is is to dispose of the stealth filibuster to require people to talk. And as we dis- as we discussed, this is this is the modern day filibuster, and it doesn't really happen actively. As long as the Senate Majority Leader knows that they don't have sixty votes to pass a bill, they're just not going to bring that bill to the Senate floor to vote on. A senator can filibuster a bill simply by you know writing the Majority Leader a little note, you know, a little post it, <laughs> and saying. <laughs> A, I'm just not going to vote for this. I'm, I'm going to filibuster this when it comes to the floor, so maybe just don't even do it. It's basically a, a pre-filibuster filibuster. Exactly. If the Senate changes the rules to say that you have to actively be on the floor speaking, suddenly a filibuster becomes a much more daunting task. We get back to having to figure out how you're going to use the potty. I don't know if you've ever stood for an extended period of time, listener, Robin, but... On Inauguration Day in 2017, I worked a 23-hour shift with the Secret Service. I'm just going just, to just take my word for it when I say that by the end of that shift, the mere act of standing was an effort akin to running a 10K, which I know because I've been doing a lot of these lately because of your husband, Robin. Uh, <laughs> it's just, it, it like, I distinctly remember at the end of the night, I was leaning on like a, a, a baller, a little concrete pillar, and I went to stand up, just just move, shift my weight forward so I was holding my own weight, and my legs were shaking. Just, it was, my, my knees almost buckled just trying to hold my body weight. So doing that on the Senate floor to kill a bill is no mean feat. And doing that while holding a discussion, talking about something. Yeah. Now, you don't. I, 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 you don't actually have to talk directly about the the bill at hand. No. By the way, I think some senators have actually like read books yeah. out loud. Somebody read the DC floor, phone book. Like yeah. yeah, you just have to be talking. You have to be making just just tying up the time of the of the Senate. Right, doing that for twenty three, twenty four, twenty seven hours is just. I mean, whether or not you agree with the person doing it, that's impressive. So realistically, realistically, this would limit the amount of time a senator or a group of senators could filibuster a bill unless they somehow decide to use their time actively filibustering something all day, every day. Eventually, eventually they would give up and the vote would be taken. I have a feeling that any senator that spent four years or probably probably two years. Well, no, they have six-year terms. So four years of a of a president's uh, tenure in office, their first term, right? Just filibustering, and that's all they did for four years. I have a feeling they probably wouldn't be reelected by their constituents. Yeah, because they didn't. Their job isn't to stop the other side; it's to advocate for their constituents, and they're not doing that by filibustering. So, as with lowering the cloture threshold, altering. The Senate rules requires three-fifths of the voting members present to vote in favor of the change. So at this time, there's 
just basically simple, there's just no incentive for the minority party to support that change, which basically leaves us with the nuclear option. Ah, uh, yes. The nuclear option completely eradicating the filibuster. Dun, dun, dun. We've talked about it a couple of times so far. You might have heard about it in 2012 or 13 or in 2017. And the way that this is presented might lead you to believe that the nuclear option is just making it so that a simple majority would be the only thing that you needed to reach a decision on any given measure in the Senate. But the nuclear option itself isn't making things happen via Senate majority. It's how you would make that change happen? Admittedly, like, it's a pretty convoluted path, so just buckle in, try to follow along with us here. But it is, it's most likely the only path forward if the Democrats actually wanted to carry through with eliminating the filibuster altogether. So here it is, we're about to get a little wonky, as in we're donning our Senate procedure wonk hat. I love that word so much. I do too policy wonk. So the nuclear option is essentially what we call creating a new Senate precedent by taking advantage of the way the Senate works. Kind of like beating a game by playing it in a way it wasn't meant to be played, but still technically following the rules. See, precedent isn't a formal rule. It's basically a formalized tradition. The Senate did this things this way before, so we'll do them again this way. There was a lot of discussion about that over the confirmation of Supreme Court Justice Barrett. Um, precedent this, precedent that. You know, is it precedent to confirm a new Supreme Court justice when a president's on the way out? Yes, it is. No, it's not. Yada, yada. Basically, precedents help guide interpretation of the rules. And using the nuclear option takes advantage of the fact that a new precedent can be established by a senator raising a point of order. In this case, a senator would claim that the filibuster is violating a rule of the Senate. This point of order is raised to the presiding officer, um, who's usually a member of the Senate. Sometimes the presiding officer is not a member of the Senate. They're the vice president. Right. <laughs> so um, technically, the vice president is the head of the Senate. But since they don't actually sit in Senate, uh, the the presiding officer is, is the president pro tem, and they are the the person overseeing the operations of the Senate. So if this if this presiding officer agrees that yes, a rule has indeed been broken, then a new precedent is established, and you can no longer do whatever raised the point of order to begin with. So in this case, one could no longer filibuster. If the presiding officer disagrees, however another senator can actually appeal that decision. So then if a simple majority of the Senate votes to overrule the decision of the chair, which is another term of the presiding officer, another term to re reference the presiding officer, excuse me, um, then the opposite of the chair's ruling becomes precedent, which sounds really confusing. But basically in this scenario, somebody says, point of order, the filibuster breaks the rules of the Senate. And then the chair says, no, the filibuster doesn't break the rules of the Senate. And then another senator says, ah, ha, 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 but it does. Let's vote on it. And then the vote is held. 51 senators agree that the chair is in fact wrong. 
and the filibuster is ruled to have broken the rules of the Senate despite the chair's disagreement, and the filibuster is no longer allowed. The presiding officer, just so people know, the formal title of the President Pro Tempore of the United States, which is, like I said, referenced or sometimes shortened to the President Pro Tem, uh, is currently Vermont Senator Patrick Leahy, who is a Democrat, meaning it's pretty likely that such a point of order against the filibuster is going to be agreed to by the chair anyway. So it's unlikely that there's going to be a vote needed at all to end to end the filibuster. Okay, so we're going to get into arguments against the nuclear option and arguments for the nuclear option, but I do not understand why no one has just done this yet. Like, this feels like the most simple solution to this problem. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and the arguments, we'll talk about a lot of them, but it really just boils down to the fact that it's, it's, uh, it's dangerous. Yeah. It's dangerous. That's really all there is to it. We are blasting away at measures that were designed to force people to, to work together, I think. At least that was the the surface level right. um, reason that these rules were put into place by the Senate, not the Constitution. And, you know, if you blast away at these things, you kind of force one party to rule by majority, which means that the other party doesn't have any power, which might further divide this country. Yeah. That's the, the really high level version of it. That's why it just hasn't happened yet. The other thing is there is a little uh, nuclear football, uh, if you'll for, forgive the, the pun, being tossed around uh, right now on the Democratic side. And that's the fact that there are two Democratic senators who don't currently support uh, uh, abolishing the filibuster. Interesting. And that gives them a lot of power right now. It does. A lot of power. It does. So... The Democrats have to balance, you know, allowing the filibuster to continue because it might be in the political interests of the two senators who disagree with it versus nuking the filibuster Yeah, because they can't get anything accomplished as long as one Republican senator is like, no, I'm not going to I'm not going to vote for this. And so, or not one, sorry, uh, I guess 11 of them would have to say they were going to filibuster because that would make it impossible for the Democrats to get closure. 60. Right. Um, so it's just, yeah, it's, it's a complicated. As we were about to explore. I feel like it's worth mentioning again, which we've talked about since we've been doing kind of this civics 101 stuff that the original framers of the Constitution, the Founding Fathers, did not have any anticipation. They genuinely believed that that the United States government, that the Congress would work together to solve problems. They did not anticipate that we would devolve into a party system, let alone a hotly contested two-party system. So when we talk about things like eliminating the... Uh, the ability or the incentive for people to work together and, and debate, we are talking about basically eliminating the way that the founding fathers anticipated the United States government would work. 
So let's dive into that a little bit deeply, more deeply, deeplier, and talk about arguments against this nuclear option. Right. From a strictly political standpoint, individual senators might find that the filibuster is useful to their own personal power and policy goals because it allows them to hold up the passing of some measure in order to secure support for their own measures. Basically, one senator can say, I'm not giving you my much-needed vote to pass unless you give me your much-needed votes to pass my thing. And that's probably how they all sound. All of them. And actually, this is one of the arguments for eradicating the filibuster because of this political jockeying. Majority party leaders, on the other hand, can use the fact that they need 60 votes to end debate on any given measure against the minority. Well, constituents, we would have passed this bill, but Senator so-and-so of the minority party over here just wouldn't give us their vote and held things up by filibustering. Don't blame us. We tried. It's all their fault. I feel like that is just basically the summation of political rhetoric for my entire adult life. Yeah, oh, it's 100%. That's, you, you can boil down just about every public statement about any bill or law to that. Yeah. We would have, but, you know, those guys... And this rhetoric is particularly effective on measures for which the majority leader may not actually have support from all of their own party. Never mind the fact that three Democrats weren't so sure about this bill. It was the Republicans that filibustered it, so it is their fault it didn't pass. And further, senators might be concerned about the future. Changes that a legislature makes now might come back to bite them in the future. We saw this with Brett Kavanaugh's appointment to the Supreme Court. Because the Republicans refused to seat any of Obama's cabinet appointments, Democrats made it a simple majority vote to confirm everything but a Supreme Court justice. But literally, as everybody predicted except the Democrats in the Senate, as soon as the Republicans were in control again, they used this precedent to expand only needing a simple majority to Supreme Court justices which allowed them to shove whatever justice they wanted through the confirmation process. And thus we got Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett, not to mention 231 federal court justices and many, many political appointments. Yep. Other arguments include that getting rid of the filibuster means that there would be no way for the minority party to make their voices heard in the Senate anymore. The majority party would set the rules and control everything in the Senate, relegating the minority members to a position slightly more elevated than piece of furniture in the chamber. (laughs) But America was never meant to be a one-party rule nation. The whole purpose of the Constitution of the government was to force people with diverse opinions to come together to make legislation together. This would be particularly onerous burden when the Democrats are the minority party, as they typically represent more Americans than the Republicans do. So case in point, in 2020, the Republicans that voted to acquit Trump of his first impeachment represented roughly 15 million fewer Americans than the Democrats voting to convict Trump. So when, not if, but when the Democrats are in the minority again, which is likely after the 2022 elections, but that's an episode for another time, when they're in the minority, they will, they will likely represent more Americans than the Republicans will, 
which to be clear, this isn't a flaw of the Senate. It was the way the Senate was designed since every state gets two senators regardless of population. However, by removing the filibuster, Democrats in that situation would be giving up a lot of power to represent the majority of Americans. Proponents of the filibuster argue that it forces political parties to compromise and pass legislation and represent everybody more equally, when any single member of the other party could keep a critical bill from becoming a law, you have a lot more incentive to ensure that the other party doesn't want to filibuster your upcoming bill. The thought is that naturally, you will try to craft something that either includes them in making that bill, or at least takes them into consideration to the point where they can support the bill even if it might not be perfect. Throw them a just enough scrap to get them to say, yeah, I, I can't in good conscience vote against this. That actually leads us nicely into why some people do want to end the filibuster. Currently, 50 Republican senators only represent 43% of the U.S. population, the majority of which are white, rural citizens. Those representatives have the power to kill any legislation that comes to the Senate that doesn't represent their relatively monolithic range of constituents. And this is the core of the argument against the filibuster. It is, practically speaking, the most inherently undemocratic legislative chamber in any advanced democracy. Those who oppose the filibuster argue that it essentially gives the minority an unfair veto over the majority's agenda. If you don't like the way a certain bill looks, well, you just filibuster it indefinitely. Especially with the rise of this stealth filibuster, any single senator in a closely divided Senate, say 50-50 or something crazy like that, can keep any piece of legislation they don't agree with from becoming a law. Compounding that, the majority of the uses of the filibuster have been against progressive ideas like the Civil Rights Act or Medicare for All, meaning that though they represent the minority in terms of population, the people filibustering representation are doing so as a representative of the greater majority of the American population, or in reductive terms, the filibuster has been used more frequently to keep actual minority populations in the U.S., like people of color, people with medical conditions, LGBTQ populations, from passing their legislative plans, and instead has maintained the actual majority, i.e. white, straight people, in a position of power in society and politics. The filibuster hurts equity rather than fostering it. Further arguments for abolishing the filibuster lean on the founding fathers themselves. They were expressly against the idea of needing more than a majority to pass a measure within the Senate. The three-fifths majority to pass a measure is not actually written into the Constitution, but was decided upon by the Senate itself. However, both Alexander Hamilton and James Madison expressed how such supermajorities would cripple government and actually have the opposite of the intended effect. They did this in Federalist Papers number 22 and 58, respectively. On the point of the filibuster forcing senators to work together and compromise on the bill, which was the last point we made in favor of the filibuster, uh, the argument against that is um, how much compromise have you seen happening in the last, I don't know, 10 years? There's, you know, none. Yeah, I know. We know. We know. We know. <laughs> that is not actually a great argument. That's, that's only anecdotal. 
And please do not try to convince anybody of anything by asking them, what have you seen with your own eyes? Uh, but the assumption that senators will work to reach compromise relies on an underlying assumption. The minority party must work in good faith with the majority party in order for the filibuster to actually be effective. That is the problem. Because the majority party takes all of the risk while they are in power. When, when a bill gets passed, the majority party gets credit. But when bills fail, they take the blame. Despite the argument that the filibuster can be used politically to put blame on the minority party, in practice, we see that the majority party will take the blame for a bill not passing even if it didn't pass because of the minority party's filibustering. Think about this. Think about how often you heard criticism of Obama's government, Obama's administration, and they're not being able to do anything while he was in office. That inability to pass legislation is part of why the pendulum of public favor swung towards the Republicans in the 2016 election. It was, you know, Obama said he was going to do all of these things, and he didn't. So we're going to give Republicans a chance because the, the, the Democrats obviously can't be trusted to do what they say they are going to do. So while the argument that it forces the parties to compromise uh, might sound good, in practice, it, it puts all of the power in the hands of the minority party and allows them to just basically destroy the majority party and the way that they appear to the public. And that isn't, that isn't um, my opinion. That's not something that you need to take my word for. That's what Mitch McConnell had to say about the filibuster in 2011. It was a completely intentional maneuver. He said, we worked very hard to keep our fingerprints off these proposals because we thought correctly, I think, that the only way the American people would know that a great debate was going on was if the measures were not bipartisan. When you hang the bipartisan tag on something, the perception is that differences have been worked out. And there's a broad agreement that that, that is the way forward, that bipartisanship. Uh, <laughs> I can't. Mitch wanted, I know, he's... Uh, and like that is, that really gets to the heart of how Mitch McConnell thinks. If you need any single quote to understand Mitch McConnell, it's that one. Ugh. Any, any assumption that that ancient turtle man isn't smart, <laughs> isn't conniving, goes out the window when you realize how he operates. He puts political expedience above the people yeah just that's it he does whatever it takes to make sure that his party maintains power which is why you saw during this last couple of days up until i think yesterday up until they took the vote on impeachment mitch mcconnell was like i don't know i i might vote to in to to convict i just i have to listen to everything nobody believes no that Mitch McConnell ever was going to vote to convict Trump. But by saying that publicly, Mitch McConnell builds the permission structure 
to allow people to continue to support Republicans because Mitch McConnell, the, the minority leader, I mean, listen to him. He's not, he's being objective. He's being honest. He's being honorable. He's listening to the arguments and he's going to make a rational decision based on that, which ultimately means that Republican donors, businesses that were, were considering pulling their donations from the Republican party due to the events of January 6th and the way the Republicans have reacted they now, those businesses now have the permission structure they need to continue their donations. They can say, well, Mitch McConnell, you know, really listened to those arguments. Look at his public statements on the fact. He always said that he was going to listen to the arguments and he, he wasn't opposed to voting to convict Trump. It's, he's a genius at maintaining, maintaining the permission structure for people to support Republicans. He's incredible. And if he weren't such a dillweed about getting policies that support Americans passed, I would probably respect the hustle, but he's just, just a grumpy, grumpy mean turtle. So <laughs> Mitch wanted to send this message that the Democrats were ineffective, right? And he knew that if they couldn't get their legislation passed, that the Democrats would take the blame. So the Republicans just, didn't let any legislation get passed if they could help it, which is why we saw so many executive orders get passed under the Obama administration. Obama had very few options available to him to make any change whatsoever because the Republicans weren't going to play ball. They weren't coming to the table in good faith. Right. Because your best opportunity to regain the majority in two years is to make it very visible that the majority party is impotent. Mm -hmm. Okay, so when That's the game. when are we going to know what happens with the filibuster? When are we going to know if it's here to stay or gone like yesterday's dishwater? Well, realistically, I mean, we have no idea. We're not psychic here. Uh, but we can make some educated guesses, some research-backed guesses. First thing, uh, there was a lot of conversation about the Democrats saying, look, we're going to destroy the filibuster and Mitch McConnell saying Republicans are not going to agree to a single thing if you don't promise never to eliminate the filibuster. And all of that has kind of died down. Things have gotten done and the Democrats did not actually have to agree to stop their pursuit of eliminating the filibuster. It's because a funny thing happens when the Senate is split 50-50. The two parties actually have to come to power sharing agreement. For a while, Mitch McConnell was saying he wouldn't agree to anything if the Democrats wouldn't promise not to pursue eliminating that filibuster. However, he has dropped that requirement in his discussions, meaning that they could still pursue it without breaking their promise for whatever that's worth. However, we know that the Democrats don't actually currently have the votes that they need to completely eliminate the filibuster via that nuclear option that we talked about. This is because Senators Joe Manchin of West Virginia and Kirsten Sinema of Arizona both currently oppose the elimination of the filibuster. They don't like that idea for the reasons that we talked about above. And then we also know that there is intense pressure from the progressive wing of the party to do away with the filibuster, obviously, or we wouldn't be doing this podcast. Um, and that's compounded by the fact that there is incredible pressure on the Democrats to actually pass legislation this time around. Because nobody has forgotten what happened in 2016 and a lack of follow through on the promises that the Democrats have made on the campaign trail, looking at Georgia real hard right now, 
would certainly cost them the majority in the already difficult 2022 midterm elections. So with such a narrow majority and the Republicans having no political incentive to compromise, it's likely that they will consider blowing the filibuster up the only way to proceed with any of the business of the government that they hope to accomplish. So taking that into consideration, I think it's likely that we will at least see some sort of reform in 2021. However, if the Republicans pull the same playbook out that they had under Obama, which again, I see no reason for them not to do that, I see a future where the filibuster is removed entirely. If Senators Manchin and Cinema cannot deliver legislative victories to their states, neither of which are sure victories for either of them, Arizona and West Virginia aren't, you know, solid blue states, they might change their minds and push to get rid of the filibuster so they have legislative victories to campaign on for re-election. Unfortunately, this is, this is one of those questions where the best answer is simply, we don't know. However, however, there is an option for reform that I personally, I don't hate. I learned about it while we were researching this. Uh, and if this could be accomplished, I could see, I could see getting the votes to do it um, because it is, it is very middle of the road. So the more moderate members of the Republican Party might get on board with it. We're going to, that might, that might is doing so much work right there. <laughs> it's a big Maybe. might, might get on board with it. And that, that, that solution is a ratcheting or adjusting cloture limit. Huh. So under this system, each cloture vote would reduce the majority needed on the next cloture vote by three okay. until the bill could pass with 51 votes. It's pretty cool. So if you can't reach cloture at 60, right, you just call another vote. I think it's a day or maybe two later that you can call the vote. And that next vote would only require 57 senators to reach cloture. If that one doesn't pass, then the next one would only require 54. Gotcha. And if that one doesn't pass, the final one would require the simple majority of 51 to pass. So this would allow up to eight days of debate on any bill. So if the argument, if the argument that the filibuster allows for debates and compromise to happen is being made in good faith, then the minority should be satisfied with this resolution because it allows that debate to happen. It just puts a cap on how long you can debate something. I feel like that's that's a solid option. I don't hate that. I don't hate it either. I I this it was really, really strange doing the research for this one because I kept going back and forth on like, oh yeah, we should keep the filibuster. And no, we really need to get rid of the filibuster. <laughs> like I was just like Hmm, ha, hmm. And I personally, I think after doing this, and again, this research, dear listener, you do not have to form an opinion on one side or the other because of us. We're not trying to get you to change your mind no. if, if you don't agree with us. We just want you to know, you know the field of play right now. But I personally, I feel like the filibuster probably needs to be done away with. Yeah. You know, and I, I only feel that way because I don't see any reform actually happening because like all of the other non-nuclear options, this change for the cloture restriction still requires 60 senators to change, to change it, to change Rule 22. Right. And it's just, 
It's just unlikely to happen as long as the current state of highly divisive politics remains and Donald Trump from Mar-a-Lago and his ideology and in his followers across the nation can, can drive policy. As long as that's true, you're not going to get enough Republican senators to peel off to support a Democratic proposal. Because right now, the prevailing thought is that Democrats are evil and any support of any of their ideas is therefore evil. Um, so if you feel strongly about this, I think you should write your senators, yes. people. Write them. Get on the horn. Call them. Start a campaign. Yeah. It just flood their inboxes with what you think should be done. I, I, I think the argument in favor of the American people would be, at the very least, restricting the ability of the filibuster to be utilized at all. Yeah. I, I definitely agree. But you, dear listener, don't actually even have to have a strong opinion on the filibuster. All that we ask is that you understand it, how it works, why people like it, why people don't like it. If you feel meh about it, that is your prerogative. Yeah. It's totally one of those things everybody's like, nobody cares if the Democrats blow it up. Nobody cares about the filibuster, which I don't think is necessarily true, but I've heard that a lot. I've heard that a lot. Who cares about Senate procedural stuff? Hmm, I don't know. I feel like that's directly owing to this stealth filibuster. I feel like if people still had to stand on the floor and talk for 24 hours... Oh, yeah. More people would care about the filibuster. But since you don't see it happening, you're not experiencing yeah. that on the news coverage, then it's easy to just, yeah, just be like, it's just, whatever, they're just not getting anything done. Whatever, who cares Who cares about the filibuster? Yeah. yeah. It's, yeah, it's just a part of life now, which, hmm. So we'll see. I know, I mean, I think you and I, we kind of live in a, in a bubble, and probably the people that listen to us, a lot of your average day, uh, average everyday Americans don't really care about what's happening in Washington anyway because they don't they don't feel how that if it, it affects them right. Um, so it's probably just a minority of of Americans that even care. It's a minority of a minority that cares about the filibuster at all. Right. But uh, I figure that's probably exactly who our audience is. So. Yeah. No, we know that you guys are the minority. The minority. Yeah. Which is fine. And you're plugged in. Call your senators, dude. Call them. Yeah, seriously. So uh, I think that pretty much wraps it up for what we've got to share. I'm going to hit you guys with our contact deets, and then Robin's going to close us out with some some good some news. news. Some news, some yeah. News. There's a little there's a little asterisk on the good part of this one this week, which we'll get into right. after, the, after I tell you this stuff. If you like what we talk about, what we do here, if you think we're super duper cool you can let us know in a variety of ways. The most important way, the most beneficial way for us would be if you leave a review on whatever platform that you listen on. I am personally on my knees, holding your hands, asking you to leave us a review because reviews drive traffic. It drives new listeners to the show New listeners coming to this show means more people have a broader understanding of the topics at hand. More people with a broader understanding of what's happening means more better decision-making on what we should do. Yes. That's ultimately the goal of what we're doing here is trying to make better decisions. So please, please do your civic duty. Leave us a review. I think that works. Uh, <laughs> If you just 
if for some reason your your platform doesn't allow you to leave a review, uh, you can always find us on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, on both platforms, we are Fireside Breakdowns. You can search that. You'll find us. You can leave us a review on Facebook. We're pretty sure that helps us too. It gets people to the Facebook page, which then gets them to the podcast. Um, Instagram, you can heart our posts. Uh, we're also on uh, Twitter, sorta working on that. More still, consistently still now than we ever have been. That's true. More than before, and our handle there is Fireside Breakdowns too. If you search for Fireside Breakdowns, you'll find us. That is our username. Yeah. But I think our official handle our is like Fireside Break One. Because character yeah, elements something or something, weird. but yeah, fireside breakdowns. Yeah, we'll find us. You'll there find too. us. Uh, look for the cool logo that we have, um, and you can always email us directly as well. firesidebreakdowns at gmail.com. Uh, if you have a request, a listener request for a show, if you really, really feel like we need to talk about the impeachment trial and what the hell happened there, let us know. Yeah, and, and we'll hit it, um, or anything else, anything else. So uh, yeah. I think that about covers it. Uh, Robin, hit us with the news. Yeah, like we just alluded to a minute ago, um, we're going to say that this week's good news is not really unbiased. Okay? We normally try to keep the good news section relevant to the topic that we're discussing and have it be something that could objectively be considered to be good news, no matter what your political leanings are. But there's really not a good way to do that with the filibuster because it's you know, pretty apparently divided across party lines. You either love it or you hate it, depending on whether or not your team is in the majority or the minority. And so this week's good news is not exactly on topic and pretty biased because it's about the impeachment trial and specifically the people who voted to convict President Trump. Stay with me here. So somewhat unexpectedly, seven Republicans voted to convict President Trump in last week's impeachment trial. This was two more than were actually predicted. Richard Burr, Bill Cassidy, Ben Sass, Lisa Murkowski, Mitt Romney, Pat Toomey, and Susan Collins all joined the Democrats in voting to convict the former president. The current record holder for the most impeachments of a president ever, Donald Trump. And that means that this vote, even though it was unsuccessful, is the most bipartisan support for conviction ever in a presidential impeachment trial. So Trump set another record. So many records, y'all. Now, it is true that Trump was acquitted due to the fact that two-thirds of the Senate is required to convict a president, meaning 10 more Republican senators would have actually needed to vote to convict than did. But we think that this is at least a silver lining, especially in, our, in context of our discussion about what is unity and bipartisanship that we had last week. Hopefully, the example that these Republicans set is that it is possible to listen to the evidence and the arguments from the other side and vote based on your con convictions and still be a Republican or a Democrat, if you want to extrapolate that out there. Uh, we feel like this demonstrates during a time when so many people are questioning whether ideals or allegiances do or should guide our political processes that there are still some in the Republican Party that are willing to keep their values as the most important aspect of their political decision-making and not their political ambitions. And that is certainly good news. It's true. Robin, we got to do one more thing that I forgot about. Black History Month. Oh! All right, all right, all right.
Aha, okay, here we go. Thomas W. Stewart, an African-American inventor from Kalamazoo, Michigan, patented a new type of mop on June 11, 1893. Thanks to this intelligent black man and his invention of a clamping device that could wring water out of the mop by using a lever, floor cleaning was not nearly the chore that it once was and we no longer have to drip water all over the floor when we go to mop. It's pretty cool. I like finding the quote-unquote small changes that make a huge difference in life, you know? Huge. So I think that's it's pretty interesting. I don't think at the time that he figured a lever to ring out a mop was any great accomplishment, really. But... Uh, I don't know, it's it's ubiquitous at this point, and a lot of people I don't think could imagine doing that without that technology, without, you know, it's that's how you mop. You bring out your mop and then you do it. So yeah. that's just, that's neat. I love it. That's cool. All right. So that's it for this week's episode. We will see you all one week from now. Let us know if you have anything you want us to talk about. Until that point, stay safe out there. If you're getting dumped with some snow, uh... <laughs> drive slow <laughs> please and uh, everybody uh, take care of each other <laughs> <laughs>